It's both the darkest era of Jewish history and also one of the most rigorously studied, the Holocaust. Thousands of books have been written, deep research has gone into just about every aspect of the Nazis' rise to power, World War II, the destruction of European Jewry and its far-reaching consequences. I think it's safe to say that it's the era of Jewish history that American Jews are most familiar with. And it has become, for better or worse, a major focus of American Jewish communal life and education. So you might think that there aren't really any big mysteries left to solve, but there are a few outstanding questions that we have theories for, but no definitive proof. We'll be looking at three today. What happened to Raoul Wallenberg? Who betrayed Anne Frank? And whether Pope Pius XII failed to adequately oppose the Nazis? That's today's episode of Unsolved Jewish Mysteries here at Jew I Don't Know. I'm your host, Jason Harris. Welcome back. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. On July 9, 1944, a 32-year-old Swedish diplomat arrived in Budapest, Hungary. He was on a mission. The United States War Refugee Board sent him, Raoul Wallenberg, to Budapest to save as many Jews as he could. It was a tragic and perilous moment for Hungarian Jewry. Hungary was an ally of Nazi Germany, but by early 1944 the nation was exhausted from war and defeat. The government entered into secret negotiations with the United States and Britain to cease fighting, but Hitler wouldn't stand for it and ordered the German army to occupy Hungary. They installed the Hungarian Arrow Cross Party, a far-right fascist regime, to run the country. And this posed a huge threat to the Jews. Up to that point, the Jews of Hungary had suffered under official anti-Semitism, violence, and repression, but they had been mostly spared the concentration camps. Hungary's government wouldn't allow the deportation of Hungarian citizens. But with Germany in control now, infamous Nazi murderer Adolf Eichmann set up shop in Budapest and began the grim business of deporting as many Hungarian Jews to the death camps as fast as possible, as the Soviets were closing in from the east. The Hungarian government was in charge of transporting Jews to the border, at which point the Germans took over. By the time Raoul Wallenberg got to Budapest in July, more than 440,000 Hungarian Jews had already been deported. Most were sent to Auschwitz, and of those, 75% were murdered on arrival. By the fall, the Arrow Cross would launch a campaign of utter terror against Hungary's Jews, especially focused on the 200,000 who remained in Budapest. It was an effort of such extraordinary brutality that Winston Churchill called it the greatest and most horrible crime ever committed in the whole history of the world. But the Jews had one source of protection, an international zone of safe houses in the city. Jews could live there if they had certificates of diplomatic protection from neutral countries, countries like Sweden. The Swedish government, under the American War Refugee Board, sent Raoul Wallenberg to the embassy with 650 passports to distribute to the Jews. Pretty quickly, they upped it to 4,500. Recognizing how small that number was, Wallenberg built an aggressive rescue operation, issuing as many protective letters as he could generate. He corralled a staff of 340 people, 
slap the neutral Swedish flag on the sides of hospitals, soup kitchens, nurseries, and more than 30 of those safe houses, and bribed whoever he needed to to finance the whole effort. When Eichmann sent thousands of Jews on a death march to the Austrian border, Wallenberg and his people drove after them, handing out food, clothing, and medicine. He handed out as many Swedish passports as he could, and then demanded that the Arrow Cross and Nazi guards honor Sweden's diplomatic neutrality by releasing the Jews into his care. In one of his most famous rescues, he raced to the train station to intercept a convoy bound for Auschwitz. While German and Hungarian soldiers fired warning shots at him, he jumped onto the roof of the train and handed out passports through the window. He then ordered all the Jews possessing Swedish documents off the train and into the waiting vehicles. The German and Hungarian soldiers were so dumbfounded by his audacity that they didn't stop him. And he wasn't alone in this. Yad Vashem, Israel's premier Holocaust museum and research center, has recognized dozens of diplomats for their rescue efforts during this time. Wallenberg worked closely with Karl Lutz, the Swiss consul general, who issued Swiss passports to some 50,000 Jews. The Catholic Church's emissary was also issuing protective visas, as were diplomats from Portugal and Spain, and many resorted to clandestine methods to get passports into the hands of the Jews. Tens of thousands of Jews were saved in this way. But what makes Wallenberg stand out is not only his courage, but what happened to him after the war. Which is to say, we don't really know. In December 1944, the Soviets lay siege to Budapest, and on January 17, 1945, Wallenberg was called to appear at the Red Army's headquarters to answer questions about whether he was engaged in espionage. Wallenberg anxiously said he wasn't sure if he was going as a guest or a prisoner. Those were his last words that we know of. Wallenberg was detained and a few days later sent to the infamous Lubyanka prison in Moscow. He shared his cell with another prisoner, but that prisoner was moved in March, never saw Wallenberg again, and from there the trail pretty much goes cold. That same month the Soviets claimed that Wallenberg had been murdered by the Gestapo in Hungary. The Swedish government assumed he was dead, but rumors persisted over the years that Wallenberg had been cited in various Russian prisons. In 1957, the Russians released a letter, dated to 1947, that Wallenberg had died that year in a prison of a heart attack. By the late 90s and early 2000s, several well-connected Russians came forward to claim that Wallenberg had instead actually been executed in 1947. And that certainly seems the most probable outcome that the Russians executed him on charges of espionage. But rumors continued for decades afterwards, as numerous witnesses, from British businessmen to KGB generals, they all claimed to have encountered Wallenberg in various prisons. The last claim was in 1987, from a former World War II resistance fighter. Wallenberg's family never gave up the search, and his relatives continue it to this day, as there still appear to be archives that may shed light on his fate. According to Russia, Wallenberg died in July of 1947, although the case remains open. In October of 2016, Sweden finally declared him legally dead. In all, Wallenberg saved between 5 and 10,000 Hungarian Jews. One of them, Tom Lantos, went on to serve in the United States Congress. Only eight people have ever been made honorary citizens of the United States. Winston Churchill was the first and Raoul Wallenberg was the second. He was also made a citizen of Israel, 
Hungary, and Canada. Probably over 100,000 Hungarian Jews were ultimately rescued, of which Wallenberg played a small but notable role. There's no doubt that he's been mythologized a bit, thanks in part to his heroics and also, of course, his sad fate. He exemplifies what Yad Vashem calls a righteous Gentile, a non-Jew who places their own life at risk to save the lives of Jews. His fate remains one of the outstanding mysteries of the Holocaust, and while it's possible we won't ever learn exactly what happened to him, there's no doubt that his name will never be forgotten. She's the single most famous victim of the Holocaust, Anne Frank. We know a tremendous amount about her short life, thanks to her diary and the fact that she was survived by her father, Otto Frank, and a few other close friends and relatives. Living in Amsterdam at the outbreak of war, by 1942 her family hid in a secret attic apartment concealed behind a bookcase in the building where her father worked. They were later joined by another family, the Von Pels, and a Jewish refugee named Fritz Pfeffer. There they remained for two years, during which time she kept her diary. But on August 4th, 1944, German police led by an SS officer raided the building, busted into the attic, and arrested everyone. But how do the Germans know where to look? That is the lingering question. It is generally accepted that someone who knew of their hiding place betrayed them, but who? Surprisingly, for a family in hiding, there are a lot of suspects, as a number of people knew about the Franks' hiding place. Several of Otto Franks' employees were helping to conceal them, as were members of the Dutch resistance. There were still others who were in close proximity to the Franks, but were not in on the secret. Otto Frank long suspected Willem von Maren, an employee in the building who did not know about the Franks' hiding place. But he makes an appearance in Anne Franks' diary as someone the family didn't trust. It may be that he discovered their secret and tipped off the police. Although he was investigated after the war, including by the famous Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal, no evidence ever came to light. But possibly connected to von Maren was Tony Allers, who had once been a business associate of Otto Frank and had the occasion to visit the building where they were hiding. Although he too was never informed of the secret annex, he was a known anti-Semite and a member of the National Socialist Movement in the Netherlands, a Dutch Nazi sympathizing group. He was also friends with three other members of the group who joined in the raid on the annex that arrested the Franks, which is a pretty interesting coincidence. So it may be that he found out the Franks' secret and either went to the Germans himself or tipped off his fascist buddies. Again, despite several investigations, no hard evidence ever came to light. His own son later said that he thought his father did it. Still another suspect, a night guard named Martin Sliegers who investigated a possible burglary at the building back in April of 1944. Anne Frank mentioned it in her diary. During the course of his investigation, he and his partner came across the bookcase that hid the entrance to the attic and apparently realized that something was amiss. But there's a four-month gap between that moment and the raid, and there's no record that he reported anything further to the police, or even that he figured out that the Franks were hiding there. One incredibly bizarre suspect is Anz von Dijk, a Dutch-Jewish businesswoman. 
She was arrested by Nazi intelligence in Amsterdam, agreed to work with them, and began posing as a member of the resistance to pass along names and information to the Nazis. She pretended to help Jews find hiding places and then turn them over to the police. In all, she trapped over 145 people, about half of whom were killed in the camps. She even betrayed her own brother and his family. Some suspect that she was the one who turned to the Frank family, but again, the evidence for that is very thin. She was tried for treason after the war and became the only Dutch woman executed for her wartime crimes in 1948. Finally, well not finally, there are others, but finally in terms of likely suspects, finally there is Nellie Von Wick. She was the daughter of the man who built the bookcase that hid the secret annex and who helped support Jews in hiding. Nellie, however, was a Nazi collaborator who did not approve of her family supporting the Jews. Her sister later remembered that Nellie had made a phone call to the Gestapo on the morning of the raid. The SS officer who led the arrest wrote down on his report that the informer sounded like a young woman on the phone. As with all the other suspects, there was never any hard evidence found. It's also possible that no one in particular betrayed the Franks. The website of Meep Geese, the Dutch woman who was primarily responsible for hiding and caring for the Franks, notes that the family started to get a little sloppy as the months of hiding turned into years. They began to open the curtains a little too wide, made a little too much noise, gave off a few too many hints that there were some people in the attic after working hours. The Anne Frank House Museum in Amsterdam has suggested that they might have been found by accident, while the German police were searching for fraudulent food ration cards in the building. Still, the available evidence does suggest that someone tipped off the police, but whoever it was has remained undiscovered to this day. Anne Frank and her family were soon deported to Auschwitz. She and her sister Margot were later sent to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in Germany. First her sister, and then Anne, fell victim to a typhoid epidemic there. Although legend has her dying just a few weeks before the British liberated the camp in April of 1945, it is more likely that they both died in February. But no record was made, and they were both buried in an unmarked mass grave. And so the end of her life remains, too, another mystery. There have been 266 popes of the Catholic Church, but for sure one of the most controversial of them was Pope Pius XII, the pope who reigned during World War II. When it comes to the persecution of the Jews in the Holocaust, the argument is basically this. His supporters say that the pope spoke out vociferously against the treatment of the Jews, led the church in saving Jewish lives, and did the best he could in a difficult situation. His detractors say that he didn't do nearly enough to oppose the Nazis, that under his leadership the church missed crucial opportunities to condemn the Nazis, and perhaps save even more lives. A lot of it depends on how you want to take what he said. There are Catholics and Jews and objective historians on all sides. They don't split neatly by religion. There is no doubt that the Pope spoke out against fascism and the Nazis' anti-Semitism. Yet it's also the case that he often spoke ambiguously or diplomatically, trying to preserve the Vatican's neutrality. So for example, in his Christmas message of 1942, Pope Pius urged the world to give serious consideration to the crumbling social order that had led to war. Mankind, he said, 
owes that vow to the hundreds of thousands who without any fault on their part, sometimes only because of their nationality or race, have been consigned to death or slow extermination. Now you'll note that he doesn't say Jews, or call out the Nazis, or condemn any specific atrocities. And this is what his critics mean when they say that he didn't do enough to lend the unambiguous moral clarity of the Catholic Church to the crimes being committed by the Nazis. His language was too vague and circumspect, they say. Throughout the war, his refusal to publicly denounce the final solution suggested official church timidity and indifference. That notion gets caught up in the fraught relations between the church and the Jews, going back centuries of official papal persecution against the Jews. On the other hand, his language, though seemingly vague, it wasn't lost on the ears of those to whom it was directed. The Nazis condemned his statement, saying that while the Pope does not refer to the National Socialists in Germany by name, his speech is one long attack on everything we stand for. He is clearly speaking on behalf of the Jews. Here he is virtually accusing the German people of injustice towards the Jews, and makes himself the mouthpiece of Jewish war criminals. At the same time, under the radar, the Pope issued instructions that all church officials, from nuns to priests to institutional leaders, they should all feel free to participate in the rescue of Jews. Church schools, hospitals, convents, monasteries, and other properties were used to hide Jews, and thousands of church officials participated in underground railroads, like the several church officials who were involved in the rescue of the Hungarian Jews, as I talked about a few minutes ago with Raoul Wallenberg. Still, though, it is true that the Pope failed to condemn the Holocaust directly, and some argue failed to use the full powers of the Church, such as excommunication and the papal bully pulpit, to persuade individual countries to relax their repression of the Jews. But perhaps the biggest problem was around conversions. The Nazis didn't recognize baptized Jews as Christians. They considered you Jewish if Judaism was in your lineage. Therefore, being a so-called non-Aryan Christian might not help you much. And so here the critics allege that when the Pope expressed concerns about anti-Jewish laws, he was really only concerned with Jews who had converted to Christianity, which, in the Church's viewpoint, were fully Christian. And furthermore, they argue, he held back from protesting against repression of the Jews, lest it provoke negative reaction against those non-Aryan Christians. In other words, he only cared about the Jews to the extent that they were Christian. Compounding the controversy is what happened to Jewish children who were baptized and hidden away in order to save them, but who emerged from the war as orphans because their parents were murdered. Some allege that the Vatican, under orders from the Pope, ruled that such orphans, since they had been baptized, were to remain in the church's custody and raised as Christians. His defenders note that the ruling came from the French Catholic Church, not the Vatican, and anyway, it wasn't really followed. Ultimately, though, Many argue that the Catholic Church tried to take advantage of the Holocaust to convert Jews to Christianity. I think it's pretty clear, though, that Pope Pius XII did engage the Church in the rescue of Jews, and did speak out forcefully, if cryptically, on many occasions. And let's not forget that the Vatican was in a precarious position, trying to maintain its neutrality. In 1943, Rome was occupied by the Germans and the Vatican surrounded. Had Hitler ordered it, the Nazis could have taken the tiny country in a matter of hours. There were rumors that Hitler had drawn up a plot to kidnap the Pope. 
The Pope had also learned from experience the limit of the church's moral authority when it came to the persecution of the Jews. In 1942, Dutch clergy publicly condemned the deportations of the Jews. The Nazis responded by disappearing 40,000 Catholics of Jewish descent, those non-Aryan Christians, nearly all of whom were murdered. The Pope is said to have claimed that were he to speak out, it would not be 40,000, but 200,000 lives which would be sacrificed. He told various officials that he wanted to speak out against German atrocities, but feared that doing so would make the victims even worse off. Which naturally begs the question, but how much worse could it have been? The controversy over Pope Pius's wartime efforts has plagued Catholic-Jewish relations ever since. Even more so as the Church has steadily moved Pius through the process to sainthood. Numerous studies have been carried out by scholars from both religions, but they were always stymied by a lack of access to the Vatican archives. The Vatican requires that a Pope's papers be sealed until 70 years after his reign has ended, which in Pius XII's case would be 2028. However, this past March 2019, Pope Francis announced that he would open the archives early, in March of 2020. This is a huge development. It comes after decades of pressure and will no doubt go a long way to solving the many open questions that still remain about Pope Pius's conduct throughout those tragic years. Okay, so that was a few unsolved mysteries from the Holocaust. You can find more information on my website, jewoughtoknow.com, jewoughtoknow.com. The Christopher Columbus episode a few weeks ago was a really hit accord with you all. I got a ton of email about it. So check out the website and feel free to email me about any of these episodes. We'll see what the Vatican archives will reveal, though no doubt it will take scholars many years to pour through them all. In the meantime, for us, back to ancient history, but like way, way back to a history even before the Israelites settled in the land of Canaan, to a time when giants roamed the land and maybe, just maybe, left a pile of stones in Israel to mark their presence. That's next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehithraut.